Uh, welcome everybody to Current. My name is David. I just want to jump straight into things today. We're continuing our Onward series as we're looking through Hebrews chapter 11 and considering the ancient accounts of men and women of faith and how they were able to follow the Lord in the midst of trying times. Here we are in the beginning of 2021 facing hard times ourselves no matter how you slice it. So we're looking to learn and glean from these ancient accounts so that we too can follow the Lord in hard times. And today we come to this beautiful description of God's scandalous love. I mean, how else would you describe it? Here, here's the start of our verse today. By faith, the prostitute Rahab. We've been looking at, by faith, Moses. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Sarah. I mean, just these incredible people of faith. And here we are, hit with these words, by faith, the prostitute, Rahab. Yeah, that's scandalous. It's incredible. It's shocking. In fact, in my study this week, I found that many commentators have found that over the, the many years, over the centuries, Bible scholars have looked to try to figure out what this is actually saying, because it couldn't mean prostitute. Surely the, the Hebrews writer here was meaning something else. And yet the scholarly evidence is exceedingly clear that no, we're talking about the prostitute Rahab. It is a description of scandalous love. It's beautiful. It's a little perplexing. So we're going to consider what that means for us today as followers of Jesus and as his church. So let me uh, read our text and then we'll, we'll jump in. So Hebrews 11 verse 31 says, By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. All right, so we're picking up from the story we left off last week when God had his people in circle walk around the fortress town of Jericho, the, in, the, the, the precipice of the, the promised land that they're going to re-enter. He had them walk around six times, one, once each day for six days, and then seven times on that seventh day. And on that seventh day, after they walked around seven times, they blew the trumpets, they shouted loudly with, with loud voices, and the walls came tumbling down, and they went into the city, and they took it. Well, in the events leading up to that account, in Joshua chapter 2, Joshua, the leader of God's people at the time, sent out two spies to kind of take reconnaissance of the land, try to understand what they could and bring it back, and information back to report to Joshua so they could decide what to do. Well, while those two spies were in the city of Jericho scoping things out, they took refuge in the home of the prostitute Rahab who lived on the city wall, and it on the surface makes sense why they chose to stay there, right? I mean, who would check? Who would think to stop and check with a prostitute? I mean, it's probably a place that they could hide and kind of do what they needed to do. Well, the king of Jericho eventually did find out that the spies were there, so he sent some soldiers to go check up on Rahab and, and, and search her home and try to find out if those spies were actually there. But Rahab stepped in, hid the spies, and sort of misdirected and redirected and misled the soldiers looking for these spies. Such as the, the spies, the Israelite spies, were spared, were saved. So when the soldiers left, they went on uh, ch chasing them in a, in a false direction. The spies came out of hiding and said, man, thank you so much, Rahab. I mean, you just, you really took care of us there. And Rahab then said, you know, 
I understand what everybody in the city is feeling, and that is we're all really scared of you guys, of the Israelites, because we've heard that God has been providing for you and delivering you. How, we've heard how he delivered you out of Egypt, how you performed miracles upon miracles to do that. And then we've heard how he delivered you through the Red Sea and how that was just utterly miraculous. And I just want to say to you guys, can I be spared when you besiege the city? Because I know you're going to do it. And, and I know that God's going to give it to you when you do it. So will you please spare me? And the, the spies said, well, our lives for, for yours. Yeah, we'll, we'll spare you. Here, here's what you need to do. We, we want you to put a scarlet cord outside of the window of, of, your, of your home here, which will mark your home and, and your immediate family that we want you to bring into here. And, and when we do come into the city, we will see the scarlet cord and we will spare you. We will not bring any harm to anybody in, in the home. Can you do that? And she said, yeah, of course, I, I will do that. And so the spies left, and we know the story from last week. God did everything. The walls came down, and the people came into, the army came into the city. It was delivered into the Israelites' hands, and they spared Rahab and her family. This is a story of God's scandalous love. This is a story of how the gospel, or the good news of God, is for broken sinners. I mean, there is nothing about Rahab, nothing about Rahab at all, that would qualify her for God's favor, that he would deliver her, let alone that we would celebrate her in this way, in this text. I mean, first of all, consider the fact that she was a Canaanite. Rahab was a Canaanite. Now, the Canaanites were just a people group that just did just some wretched, wretched things. I mean, we're talking some about some terrible atrocities. In fact, they're so bad, I don't even want to list them all off for you. I mean, it just makes me feel uncomfortable thinking about them, let alone sharing them in this environment. But just to give you kind of a flavor, they, they practice witchcraft, witchcraft and divination, and worst of all, child sacrifice. In fact, I came across one source this week that had an archaeological finding that in that same time frame, there was at least one episode of, of when they sacrificed over a thousand kids, burning them for their god Molech. We're talking about terrible, terrible things. And this is to say that Rahab was a theological pagan. Okay, but Rahab wasn't just a Canaanite. Rahab was also, of course, a prostitute. Which is to say, she was morally corrupt. I mean, she no doubt probably would have seen herself that way. She would have been seen as morally corrupt. She's a theological pagan. There was nothing about Rahab that would have qualified her for God's favor or for his deliverance. But here we see that she was not only delivered, but we celebrate her in this text. And she's in this incredible chapter, this hall of faith in the Bible, Rahab the prostitute. What does this mean? Well, it means that no matter your past, God loves you and wants to forgive you and wants to accept you, wants to receive you. You might, like Rahab, be confused about God. You might, like Rahab, not have your it fully worked out in your mind who he is, but you've heard things, you've, you've heard stories of people in your life and, and who God is and what he's done in their lives. You've, you've heard stories in the Bible or maybe just experiences of your own and you just, you have enough to make a decision. You may, like Rahab, really question your past. 
You may question your current trajectory, but you know what? This is showing that no matter your past, God loves you and wants to receive you. I have lost track how many times, as a pastor, I've had people tell me I can't go to church because the walls will crash down in on me if I do. Or I won't even make it into the walls of the church because lightning will strike me beforehand. But here we are celebrating Rahab the prostitute in her faith. It's incredible. It's saying that no matter your past, God loves you and wants to receive you. He asks for just one thing, and that is that you would follow him, that you would accept him, that you would receive him. We're told by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was delivered. I mean, that's Rahab with what was before her, making a decision, I'm throwing in with God. I want to follow him. In his book, James, one of the New Testament writers, really makes the thesis of his book, faith without action is is dead, is no faith. And that's his way of saying, not that we are saved by doing good things or, 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 or our action is what saves us. His point is more, if we actually believe, it will actually produce action. It will actually produce good works. If we don't have good works, how do we know we have a changed life from following God? That's his thought. Well, at one point, James chapter 2, verse 25, he states positively, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? That's saying, James is saying, that Rahab, by faith, decided, you know what, with what's in front of me, I'm going to choose to follow the Lord. I want to receive him. And what's incredible is James goes far, so far to call her righteous. In the Bible, theologically speaking, that's saying she stood rightly before God. It's incredible to think about this. But Rahab lived by faith with what God put before her, even when it came at great cost and great risk to herself. Because make no mistake, if she had gotten caught with those spies there, it would not have gone well for her, but she chose to follow the Lord. Such that today we're still talking about her. (laughs) We're still celebrating God's scandalous love and grace for her. So what does her story have to do with our story? The Bible's pretty clear, actually, that God's love isn't so scandalous because he loves Rahab or loves the Rahabs of the world. It's scandalous because he loves any of us. I mean, it's scandalous that he loves any of us. There's an incredible Old Testament book by the name of Hosea, which is entitled after the name of the prophet who who writes the book. Hosea, this prophet, was asked by God to go and love a woman who was just living an adulterous life. No doubt a a gal who was a prostitute, a gal named Gomer, God came to Hosea and said, I want you to go love her, take her in, marry her. And so Hosea did that. Went, found Gomer, took her in, loved her, married her. They had kids together. It's a beautiful picture of redemption and love, even as it no doubt had to have been messy and all the rest of it. But not too long into their marriage, Gomer just decides to go back to the life she had been living and is unfaithful towards Hosea. And of course, Hosea is heartbroken. And God comes once again to Hosea and says to Hosea, I want you to go back and find her and bring her in again and love her and cherish her. 
And then he makes this statement. He says, Hosea, what's happening here is actually in, in, in more fully a picture of what I am doing for my people. Because like Gomer, all my people, all my people live unfaithfully towards me. They all live unfaithfully. And yet I'm going to always pursue them. I'm going to love them and care for them and extend forgiveness if they would receive me. I mean, Romans chapter 3 is quite clear on this. I mean, it's no like beating around the bush with this kind of language and says, no one is righteous, not one. We are all like Rahab. We are all like Omer. We are all like King David. I mean, King David, a man in the Bible who is literally described as a man after God's own heart, lived a wonderful life, a wonderful life of faith, just did a lot of incredibly good and selfless things, but also committed a terrible, terrible act of adultery and paid some dear consequences for it and hurt, brought a lot of hurt, not only to himself, but to many people around him. God's love is scandalous because he doesn't just love Rahab. He loves any of us. He loves the King Davids. He loves the Gomers. He loves any of us. God's love is scandalous in that he loves any of us. Think of it this way. I mean, it's like, it's as if when we get to heaven, God willing, when that day comes and we're, we're there by faith and what Jesus has done for us, we're going to look around and we're going to see people there and we're going to be like, oh my goodness. Wow. They're here? That's incredible. God is so good. He is so gracious. And at the very same time, people are going to be looking around. The same people are going to be looking around and seeing us and they're going to think, oh my goodness, they're here? That's incredible. God is so gracious. That's so shocking. The gospel is none of us deserve God's love. None of us. We, no one is righteous. We all live unfaithfully. We might not be prostitutes or whatever that might mean literally, but we all live unfaithfully in any number of ways. The Bible's clear. As we live sinful lives apart from him, living selfishly, failing to extend benefit of the doubt, living sexually impure ourselves in our own ways, uh, unwilling to extend forgiveness to others, living in greed. I mean, the whole rest, having lack of patience, being overly harsh. I mean, there's so many ways that we live unfaithfully and what is scandalous about God's love is that he loves you and me when we are so undeserving. It's incredible. God is so good. So what does this mean for us on a practical level? I think what it means is if God's love is so scandalous, we need to, on the one hand, be incredibly like, like leaning into it and receiving that scandalous love ourselves. But on the other hand, we also need to learn to extend that same scandalous love to others. There is a story in John's account of Jesus' life that I think is so poignant and just drives what we're talking about from our Hebrews account of Rahab home. It's a story of when some religious leaders brought a woman who was caught in the act of adultery before Jesus, just dragged her and placed her right in front of Jesus, picked up some stones in order to cast her, and really tried to trap Jesus to see what he would do in that situation. And it was nasty through and through what these guys did. I mean, for starters, where was the dude? Why wasn't he there? Why wasn't he also dragged in front of Jesus? Some people believe, we don't have the details from the story, some people believe that these religious leaders could have very well have set the whole thing up, having a dude stage the whole thing, getting this whole thing set up, which would have just, man, I would not want to be those guys in front of the throne at the end of this life. But however you slice it, it was just nasty through and through, of course to this woman, but then also to Jesus. 
Because here they were trying to trap him, using her as a pawn to get to Jesus. And really, it was a trap. How so? Well, they were looking to see what Jesus would do with this woman, clearly having been caught in the act of adultery. Would he uphold the law? Or would he, as, we, as they understood him to be, extend grace? I mean, Jesus had been teaching both, that God has standards. He calls us to live righteously, but he also exuded mercy and grace. So which was it in this moment? And these guys were thinking, we have him. We have him. So they, they dragged and put this woman in front of Jesus, picked up their stones, said, what do you say, Jesus? How do you respond? And Jesus undoubtedly to try to diffuse some of the tension and the intensity that was happening, stooped down, got, into the, got close to the ground, just started doodling there in the dirt. Just doodled for a while. And then after a little bit of time, he asked very famously, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then just went back to doodling a little bit more in the dirt. And what we're told is that in that moment, Starting with the oldest, each of these guys began to drop their stones and walk away. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. What was Jesus helping them understand and helping us through them understand? He's helping them, helping us understand that if ever, whenever we're tempted to pick up a stone to cast judgment on anybody, it's a call to first look into our own hearts, to to, to drop that stone and look at our own hearts. Because Jesus also said, don't judge, and if you judge, the same measure that you use to judge others will be the same measure that's used on you. Implicitly, clearly saying that, and it's not going to go well for you when you do. So we can't judge. We can't pick up the stone. Why? Because the fact that God loves any of us is scandalous. But he who is without sin cast the first stone. He went back down. He started doodling again. One by one, they all left. And after they all left, he was still doodling. And after a while, he asked the woman who was still there. He said, where have they all gone? Is there no one left here to condemn you? And the woman replied, no one, sir, is left. He said, then neither do I condemn you. Go and live your life of sin, which is incredible on a couple of points. First, it shows that Jesus does not condone sin. Following Jesus is not a free passage, just go do whatever you want. In fact, Jesus emphatically preached on many occasions that his followers need to take sin with the utmost seriousness. Sin is so costly, not least of which ways is it separates us from God and his love from us. It hurts others, it hurts ourselves, often in ways that we don't even really identify initially. It cuts deep, it is terrible, it brings spiritual death. We need to take sin exceedingly serious. And so that's the first thought here is when we are the ones ourselves looking at our own hearts and we need to come to grips of, of taking sin seriously, meaning repent, asking God for forgiveness, working through ways that we can work on it with God's help and his love. And then the other thing Jesus said, of course, is neither do I condemn you. Now, I've read this story uh, many times over the years. It's a famous story, but it never struck me until this week, the fact that when Jesus asked that question, he said, are there no one else? Is there no one left here to condemn you? And she said, no one, sir. And I realized, oh my goodness, but that Jesus was still there. And you know, as the perfect sinless son of God, he could have and rightfully judged her, condemned her. And yet he said the words, then neither do I condemn you. 
in Romans 2, the first part of that chapter, it starts with saying, do not judge, lest you be judged. But then it quickly says, a few verses later, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. The way that we change, the way that we begin to actually live the life God calls us to is not by judging it, or just kind of working it, just uh, not by willpower even, but it's being transformed and changed from the, the inside out. In other words, letting the gospel, the scandalous love of God, melt into our hearts and work from the inside out. That's how we'll begin to leave, lead a life of repentance and renewal, that understanding more fully that Jesus does not condemn us, even, even as he calls us to leave our life of sin. The gospel is for broken sinners. The gospel is for people like Rahab, Gomer, King David, and people like you and me uh, that will continually live unfaithfully towards the Lord, need forgiveness, but God wants to love no matter our past and will receive us, will forgive us if we receive him. That's what the cross is all about. The cross of Jesus is really an echo down the centuries towards Jesus, uh, from, from Rahab towards Jesus. Uh, what's interesting is centuries and centuries ago, theologians noticed something about the text that really kind of helps open up what's happening in the story of Rahab. They talk about how there is a scarlet thread throughout all the scriptures. So if you remember from the story of the, with the, the spies asking Rahab to, to to hang a scarlet cord out the window, that would act as a sign for her deliverance. And anybody who is in that home, that the, the army, when they besieged Jericho, that city, they would see that scarlet cord and, the, and Rahab and everybody in her household would be saved. Well, commentator, oh, excuse me, Bible scholars throughout the years have noticed a scarlet cord or scarlet thread throughout the scriptures because the scarlet in the scriptures often convey symbolically this idea of blood, but not just any blood, blood sacrificed. That's why, for instance, we have texts that say things like the priests wore scarlet uh, threads on their robes when they paid atonement for God's people, the forgiveness of sins. It's all pointing towards things unbroken, being made holy by things that are pure. And that ultimately points to Jesus, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Meaning in an infinitely greater way that the scarlet cord saved and delivered Rahab and her household, Jesus Christ on the cross through the shedding of his blood saves all of us and puts us back into a relationship with God forever if we would just receive him, if we would just accept him. That is Jesus, our Redeemer, our Savior, our scarlet cord, who died in our place, taking our judgment on our behalf that we might have life forever with him. So if you're here today and you've never received Jesus, you never put your faith in him, this is the good news or gospel of Jesus Christ. It's for broken sinners like you and me, and all it takes is receiving him, choosing to follow him. And you can receive that even now by praying to him, Lord, I am just like Rahab. I'm just like King David. I am sinful. I am broken. I am unfaithful towards you. I live a life that brings a lot of hurt and pain to others. And I just receive now what Jesus did for me on the cross, the forgiveness of sins. And I want to follow him from this day forward. I surrender my life to you. 
And the promise is when you pray that, when you extend that heart posture towards the Lord, he will receive you. He will bring you into his family because of what he has done. This scandalous love includes you, loving you, no matter your past. And then for those of you who have received him, this is a call, this is an invitation to lean into and really relish the scandalous love that God has for you and for me. It is undeserving, but it means we get to receive it and extend it. You know, the last but not least part of this story that just blows me away as if, you know, everything we've been talking about here doesn't, is not enough to blow any of us away, is the fact that Rahab is also mentioned one other very important place in the scriptures. We have her in the Joshua original account. We have her in Hebrews. Even James talks about her. But there's one place that outshines all of them. Yes, even the hall of faith. And that is at the beginning of Matthew's account, chapter 1, this book that is about Jesus. We have the genealogy of Jesus. And you want to guess who shows up in Jesus' genealogy? Of course, it's Rahab. Which means, this is incredible, that Rahab in spite of her story, got to be rewritten into the greatest story of redemption of all. And I think that's what's incredible that God has for you and me. He wants to, no matter our past, not just love us, not just receive us and accept us, but rewrite our stories to help others receive joy, hope, love, and salvation in him. And he will use your story and mine. He wants to. Will you let him, no matter your past, God loves you and wants to use you to help others receive his love too. Let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, we, we don't deserve your love. It's incredible. It's scandalous. It's shocking because you love people like us who just don't deserve it. Uh, we all fall short in, in more ways than we can even fathom of your goodness. We, just, we live sinfully and yet your love meets us there. So we say, thank you, Jesus, our scarlet cord. You who delivered us. And Father, would you help us be a church that extends this very same scandalous, shocking, undeserved love that you've given to us to, to one another and to everyone who comes in through the doors of current. We want to be a people that loves like you loved and l continues to love. But we need your help even in this. We pray all this in Jesus' name.